nice mournful Welsh tune for a psalm of lament and longing for the Lord's house. We're going to turn now to Psalm 84. This is our scripture, our sermon text for the evening. Psalm 84, page 526, if you'd like to turn there to follow along. Psalm 84. This is God's very word, loved ones. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altar, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And our New Testament reading, John 14, 1 through 7. Our Lord Jesus speaks these words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Praise God for His Word. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, we pray that You would do the work uh, that You have come to do, to take Christ and apply Him to us, to take us and unite us to Christ through the Word read and preached. This we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. C.S. Lewis once wrote that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing else in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Lewis is saying, if we have an ache in ourselves, a homesickness in ourselves, that no home here on earth can satisfy, it's because we're made for another home, a better home. 
Lewis isn't the only one who speaks of these things. We also get this wonderful quote from Augustine. Augustine says, Lord, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And, and both Lewis and Augustine are, are trying to get at the same idea that's here in this psalm that we are looking at tonight, Psalm 84. They're both saying that we were made for fellowship with God, friendship with God. We were made to have our home with God. For God's house to be our house. That's, that's how God, right? That, that's the promise He held out to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. He creates them. He puts a, a, a test in place for Adam. Adam, if you obey this test, you'll get to live forever with me in, in, in my home. Adam disobeys and falls. And, and since then, right, we've been cut off from God's house. Unable to go to the house of God and have fellowship with God. And that's why we feel homesick. Especially, that's why the people of God who've been awakened to the, to the loveliness of Christ and the glories of God, that's why we feel homesick for another home. And that's, that's what Psalm 84 is speaking to this evening. This, this psalm is a call to remember where home is and to live as people who are traveling towards that home. This psalm is both um, encouraging saints who feel far from home, feel, feel like uh, pilgrims who are weary, like exiles far from God's house. It's, it's written to encourage those of us who are, who are feeling that way. It's also written to encourage uh, those of us who lack this feeling of desire for God's house, to correct us in that, to call us to remember where home is and to live as people heading home. So three headings just to organize our thoughts as we work through this psalm together. The first, homesick for God's house. Second, going to God's house. And third, the goodness of God's house. Homesick for God's house, going to God's house, and the goodness of God's house. So first, verses 1 through 4 here, homesick for God's house. The psalm begins with what Spurgeon calls an expression of holy lovesickness. It says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. These are the words of, of someone who is lovesick and homesick. Uh, someone who is, who is a long way from God's house, the temple in Jerusalem, but is, but is full of desire to be there. Full of that ache and yearning to be there. Now the psalm is written by, it's, it's, it's attributed to the sons of Korah. This was a group of full-time musicians who worked in the temple. Um, originally, they're Korah's sons, but then it, 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 it gets passed on, and we see this in 1 Chronicles 6.31. It's where they began. Um, but, so we're not sure when exactly this psalm is written, but it's written by this group of people who were professional musicians in the temple. That was their, that was their job. And they write this psalm, even though they themselves would have been in the temple every day, they write this psalm from the perspective of someone who's far away from the temple. And that's how it's picked up and used by the Israelites. And we see that especially in its placement here in the Psalter. If you remember, um, as, we've, as we've kind of done this overview of the Psalter, we've looked at the, the major themes from each book of the Psalter. The Psalter is actually separated into five different collections of psalms. 
The first collection of psalms is psalms of confrontation between God's king and the powers of evil. The second book of the Psalter is about communication. As, as, as the confrontation in the first book is behind us, God set up his anointed king. In, in the second book of the Psalter, we get communication from that king out to the nations, calling the nations to submit to the Lord. And then in, in the third book of the Psalms, things take a turn for the worse. They're, these are Psalms marked by devastation. We saw this earlier, right? These are Psalms like Psalm 74, where we read of the nations coming into the temple and, and swinging axes in the temple and smashing the woodworking and the paneling and setting the whole thing on fire. And the Psalms in this collection in Book 3, these Psalms of Devastation are Psalms that are dominantly grieving Psalms as they reckon with God's judgment poured out on Israel, as they reckon with the exile. And right here, in the middle of these Psalms of Devastation, Psalm 84, a Psalm of rejoicing and and longing for God's house. In the midst of these psalms of, of ruin and exile, here is a love poem to God's dwelling place in the, midst of, in the midst of all this conflict. You can imagine the Israelites, right? They're, they're being carried away into exile. The smoke of the burning temple might still be going up behind them. Right? Their whole world has just been destroyed and devastated. And they're, you know, they're wrestling with the providence of God they're, they're moving farther and farther from the temple, God's dwelling place. And this psalm comes to mind, uh, the words of this psalm. Even as they're heading to Babylon, they're remembering the temple and the dwelling place of God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My, my soul longs for that dwelling place. So this is a psalm for exiles. It's a psalm for those who are far from God's house. It's a psalm for those who've been devastated by discipline from God. You see this underlined by how the psalm uses this name for God that it does. You see there in the text, the name of God it likes best. uses it four times, verse 1, verse 3, verse 8, verse 12. From the beginning, the middle, and the end of the psalm, every part of the psalm is covered by this name, the Lord of hosts. Lord, of course, is the covenant name. It means Yahweh, I am. This is the name God uses to remind His people that He has made a promise to them to be their God and they will be His people forever. So that's a, that's a comfort, right? In exile. He is our God forever. We are His people forever. He won't break His covenant forever. He won't forget us. And the psalmist pulls that name together with hosts, Lord of hosts. That's, that's uh, referring to the heavenly armies, the angelic armies. And so as, even as you know, they're, the, the, the people there are suffering at the hands of the armies of Babylon, this is their comfort and their confidence. We serve the covenant Lord of heavenly armies, and He will keep us. He will save us. He will bring us back one day. So that's, that's a bit of, of the context as we work through the psalm here. The, we see, though, that this, um, this lovesickness that the psalmist is feeling for God's house, this homesickness, is 
a totalizing thing for him. It's a complete thing. It engulfs him. He, he says in verse 2, my soul longs and even faints. He pictures himself as someone who's hungry to the point of passing out with desire for God's house. The, the, and it goes on to say that his heart and his flesh cry out. So his whole person, his heart, his flesh, his whole person is longing and aching after God's house. You ever felt that kind of homesickness for something? Where you, you feel out of place and you feel far from home and nothing, you don't feel settled and things don't feel right. That's how the psalmist feels here. And as he's, as he's expressing this emotion of homesickness for God's house, he, he goes on to then meditate on what it was like to be there. That's what we see in verse 3. He remembers that when he was there in the temple, he saw some birds. This is a really interesting image, isn't it? He, he sees this huge bronze altar in the temple, and, and then he sees these birds, these little tiny sparrows or swallows making their nest in a little shadow, a little, a little corner under this great bronze altar. Why is the psalmist remembering that image? Well, we, we, it makes sense. He'd remember the altar, right? The altar is the heart of, of the activity at the temple. This is where peace with God is secured. Right? This is where the sacrifices happen. This is where reconciliation with God happens. This is where the covenant with God is sealed and and guaranteed. This is where God speaks peace to his people, promises his people that he'll guard them and keep them and bless them. And so as the the psalmist is meditating on this, he's reminding himself of the, the covenant promises of God and the atonement God has made for him at that altar. But then he's also thinking of these, these birds, these tiny, fragile things that have found a home there. And he's saying he, he longs to be like those birds which can make their nest, their home, at the very point where God guarantees his covenant and gives peace to his people. He wants to live right there. Or he's fragile. He's weak. He wants to live in the shadow of the altar in the temple of God. Then in verse 4, as he's remembering the temple, he also thinks of the singers in the temple, the musicians in the temple, right? And, and he's, he's envious that they get to spend their days, all their days in the temple, singing praise to the Lord. Remember, we said this is written by the sons of Korah, and they would have been some of these temple uh, musicians here in the, in the temple day by day. Um, but this, the, the author here is imagining his experience or perhaps reflecting on his own experience of a period of time where he's away from the temple and longing to be back. So the, uh, the psalmist here moves from looking at the altar to looking at the choir, from, from clinging to God's work to praising God for his work. And he's saying, this is what I long for. This is the height of happiness, to be with God, singing his praise in the temple and never having to leave. Brothers and sisters, as we, you know, as we consider here the psalmist's deep homesickness for the house of God, is this, also, is this also what you and I feel for God's house? You ever feel homesick for God's house? Holy lovesickness for His dwelling place? 
If we're going to answer that question, we have to know where God's dwelling place is, right? So where, where is it? Well, we, we believe God is, is, is present everywhere, but where does he particularly meet with his people? In the Old Testament, it's the temple. That's the, that's the focal point. But the temple was pointing forward to Christ. Christ calls his body the temple, John 2, 18-22. He himself is God with us, God come in the flesh to meet with the people of God and be their substitute and make atonement for them. And so Christ is the temple. But then we also learn in the New Testament that those who are united to Christ, Christians, are being built up into the new temple. We read this in 1 Peter 2, verses 4-5. to As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the new temple, and the church in Jesus is the new temple. We're the dwelling place of God. And so, when the church gathers, that's the dwelling place of God. That's the house of God. Not this building, but you and I, when we gather, even as we are now, we are the house of God. He meets with us. He dwells among us by his Spirit. So, let's put the question again. Do you long for God's house? Do you long to meet with God's people, especially on the Lord's Day, morning and evening as we gather together? Do you get homesick for that? Long for that? To hear God's Word read and preached, hear God Himself speak, to come together with your brothers and sisters and sing praise to God and pray together and fellowship together. Do you ever, you know, in the middle of the week and you're just, you're just aching for a Sunday to come so you can hear God's Word and meet with God's people. You long for, for Sunday to come. When, when Sunday begins, do you feel excitement and exuberance that you have the highest privilege a creature can have being welcomed into God's house? When Sunday ends, do you ever feel that, that sense of longing and ache for the eternal Sabbath that won't end? That's one aspect here. There's another aspect, though, of where God's dwelling place is, isn't there? This is what we read about earlier in John 14, uh, 1 through 7. Jesus says there that he is preparing a home for us, a heavenly home, where we will be with him. And I think that's, uh, that's, the, that's the, the even greater focus of Psalm 84, that it's calling us to long for our heavenly home with God, because the earthly temple was not just pointing uh, to Christ and to the church. It's also pointing up to the heavenly temple where God dwells in heaven and in, in, in glory. And this psalm is a psalm for those who are far from God's house, calling them to long for his heavenly home. Our home, loved ones, is not here. Our home is in heaven, where Christ is. Think of that word, home. What, what images come to mind when you think of that? I think of my family's home in Herman. Uh, I think of the fireplace. I think of the, 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 my dad built a really lovely post and beam home, and it was just the most warm, inviting, comforting atmosphere. And I can still smell my mom's cooking in the kitchen. And you think of the, this word home, and it brings to mind all these associations of warmth and comfort. What home should own our hearts? What, 
what, what, what should our greatest associations with that word be? And what should our greatest longings connected with that word be? It should be for the Lord's house in heaven. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Loved ones, is that your longing? Are you homesick to be where God is? If it is, it will affect your life. It will affect our lives, won't it? And that's where we go next in the psalm. In verses 5 to 9, the psalmist turns from this homesickness for God's house to describing going to God's house. And that's our second heading, going to God's house in verses 5 through 9. So these, these pilgrims, these exiles, uh, are, are being led by their longing hearts to make the journey home to God's house. Um, this would have been a psalm that would have been used uh, for, for those making a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem as they longed for God's house there in Jerusalem. We've said it was a psalm that would have been dear to the hearts of the exiles as they waited for the day when they would go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. This, this psalm is calling us to have hearts that are like, a, like, like homing pigeons, right? Wherever you take them, you release them, they go home. That's where they're directed. That's where they're oriented, even if it's hundreds of miles away. And, and so with us, we want to have spiritual instincts that pull us irresistibly homeward with Christ, towards Christ, helping us live lives directed towards heaven. What does this look like? What does this life of going home to heaven, to God's house, look like? We get three characteristics here. We get strength, hardship, and blessing in verses 5 through 9. Strength first. This is the first characteristic of those who are on the path to God's house. Verse 7, blessed are those whose strength is in you. It's not their strength. It's not the pilgrim's strength. It's not the exile's strength. It's God's strength that they're, that they're marked by. And this is, this is what always marks. This is what always marks. Listen, always marks pilgrims going home to heaven. It doesn't look like it, does it? It often looks like the, the closer you get to heaven, the weaker you appear. And often this strength that God gives doesn't feel much like strength. It feels in yourself like great weakness. Like you're just getting weaker and weaker, but it's God's strength that sustains you then and, 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 and strengthens you then. And so the psalmist will go on and he'll say in these verses that God's people go from strength to strength. So they're filled with God's strength. And he's saying that, that in this trip to God's house, they don't know weakness. They go from strength to strength. It's like the location they leave and the destination they're heading towards. Strength, a place of strength, one fortress to another. Think of the exiles again in Babylon as they perhaps sang this psalm. They didn't feel like they were going from strength to strength. They're an exile. They're slaves. But they're hoping in the promise of God, we are going from strength to strength to our heavenly home, filled with the very strength of God. It's a necessary strength because of how hard the journey is. And that's the second mark of the pilgrimage that we see here. And that's hardship. 
The psalmist here mentions the valley of Baca in verse 6. Some versions will translate that as weeping or tears because the word Baca is a very rare word in the Hebrew, and it's really close to the word for weeping or tears. And there might be a play play on words going on there in in the Hebrew. Um, But it's not the word for weeping. It is the word Baca, the valley of Baca. And it's understood as a very dry place. It refers to a place that's very dry, like a desert, a place without water, a wilderness, landscape. And the psalmist is saying, so we're going from strength to strength when we're heading to heaven, when we're heading to God's house. But this is what the road looks like and feels like. It's, a, it's, a, it's the valley that is dry and, and hard. We pass through a harsh wilderness. So the heavenward life is marked by hardship. But the third characteristic of the heavenward life is God's blessing. So even as we go through these hardships, even as we go through this valley of Baca, Blessing comes. God's blessing comes. It comes through us, and it comes to us. It comes through us. We, we make the valley a place of springs. See that in the verse there? As we pass through the valley of Baca, we, they make it a place of springs. As, as God's saints, heading home to Him, pass through this valley that is dry like a desert, they make it a place that's full of water springing up so that even fills up pools along the way. In the midst of of suffering, then, God is giving blessing through these saints. The way that they are traveling is becoming fruitful and, 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 and verdant and green. And this is why suffering has sometimes been called the means of grace, isn't it? That that. When you, when you go through it, God blesses you in the midst of it and makes you even a blessing to others. We see this, right? We see this in the lives of people in this church. We could look and say, they're going through some tremendous hardships, but God, through them in that hardship, is making life and blessing appear. It's a blessing through them. It's also a blessing to them. When you go through those hardships and difficulties, God Himself comes He meets with you, and He blesses you. He draws near to you, and He fills your heart with a greater and greater longing for Him. So, this pilgrimage is marked by strength, hardship, and blessing. But the ultimate blessing, the ultimate blessing that we see here that the Lord gives His people on this pilgrimage is the guarantee that this pilgrimage will end, and they'll get home. It's a wonderful promise. He says, everyone, each one of these pilgrims will appear before God in Zion. It's a wonderful promise. Every single one of God's people will get home. How does the Lord do this? Does it depend on us and our faithfulness? Our ability to press on and and keep on living a heavenward life? Look at verse 9. The psalmist here, where where is his hope? He says in verse 9, he prays that God would look on his anointed, his shield and his anointed. The word here for anointed is Messiah. So what's the psalmist's hope? That he's going to make it home. It's the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. That's the, that's the one who's the, the one who's anointed as, as king over God's people. He's the psalmist's hope. 
He's the one the psalmist is hoping will defend him, protect him like a shield, and make sure he makes it home. And of course, we're, we're, we're not looking to any kind of merely human Messiah. We're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. This text here is pointing us to him. He's the one who's our assurance that we're going to make it home. Right? Right? Think of, you know, as a kid, you're on a road trip. You have no idea where you're going. The driver does. Dad does. He knows. Even if you don't. And like that here, our hope is in our, our, uh, our King, the Lord Jesus, who will make uh, sure that we all, every one of us, gets home to himself. What does this mean for us? Well, two questions we should ask. First, are we trusting in Jesus alone to bring us home to heaven based on his finished work? Are we trusting Christ and only Christ to get us home? There is no room for trusting any aspect of our own work, faithfulness, or anything to get us to heaven. It's all dependent on Christ. That's what, he said, what's what we read in his words earlier in John 14. He says, I am the way. The second question, are you following Christ? Is your, is your life a life that is faithfully seeking to follow him? Not depending on your faithfulness, but following him faithfully. Right, think about your habits on a day-to-day basis. Think about your schedule, your, your work, your, your recreation, everything you're doing. Is it all focused heavenward in some way? Are you living your life like it's a homeward journey? The great, um, the great story of homecoming in literature is Homer's Odyssey. Think of, uh, think of that great story. There's a scene there where Odysseus in the Odyssey is lashed to the mast of his ship. He's, he's sailing through this, this treacherous place where the, there are these sirens who are calling out, and if, and if you hear them, you'll throw yourself in the water, but you'll drown. And Odysseus tells his men to lash him to the mast of the ship so that he cannot throw himself overboard in madness from these sirens. So he says, lash me to the mass. He doesn't want anything to distract him or take him away from getting home. And that's what we should do, isn't it? We should lash ourselves to the mass. Focus everything on getting home and, and living a homeward, heavenward life. One final question then. Is this kind of life worth it? Is it worth the hardship? Is it worth not having this world as our home? That's our final point, the goodness of God's house in verses 10 through 12. Here in these final verses, the psalmist turns again to the language of love poetry that he, that he began with. As he describes just how good God's house is. He says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. One day in the presence of God is better than a thousand anywhere else. He's not exaggerating. He would rather take the lowest position in God's house, be the lowest servant in God's house, than be the most privileged person and the highest person anywhere else. He's not just, um, he's, he's not exaggerating here. He's not using hyperbole. This isn't just a manner of speaking. The psalmist means this. 
Everything he has, all his, all his hope of joy is fixed on being in God's presence, in God's house. What is it that makes the Lord's dwelling place? Here in the church as we meet week by week and looking forward to our Lord's home in heaven, what is it that makes it so surpassingly good that we would say one day there is better than a thousand anywhere else? Well, it's because it's where the Lord himself is, where the God who loves us is. The psalmist uses two images here to to try to get at why it is so good to, to have God and to be with him in his house. He says that the Lord God is our son. Think of, think of everything the sun does for us. It's the source of our life and light and warmth. Without it, there would be none of these things. No life apart from it. And the psalmist is saying that's what God is. If you have him, you have life. Every, every positive blessing, every good gift from him. Then he says God is also our shield, our refuge, our safety from all enemies. So God is the one who gives life. God is the one who protects life. He's the one who gives all good things and who protects his people. There is nothing else, there's no other home that can be those things for us. There's there's no rivals to this home. There is nothing else that can be our sun and our shield like God can be our sun and our shield. He's the creator and our redeemer. He's the source of life and the source of safety. The psalmist then goes on, the Lord gives grace and glory. What does this mean? The Lord gives grace. He gives, he gives us favor that we don't deserve. He gives us blessing we don't deserve. Shows us kindness we don't deserve. And why does he do it? So that we might have glory in him. That we might be in his glorious Presence. There's a great example of, of this. Grace and glory being the means, grace, and the goal, or the end, glory. Um, in, the book, uh, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, uh, at the end of the book of Exodus, God's people uh, have, have built the tabernacle, and God has promised to, to meet with them in the tabernacle and bless them. But God, so they, they finish the tabernacle, God comes down, he fills the tabernacle with his glory. That's the goal, that they have fellowship with him there in his glory. But no one can go in at the end of Exodus. Not even Moses can go in the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. So the people of Israel are in this great quandary. We have what we're made for, but we can't enjoy it. There's God in the tabernacle among us, but his glory is so awesome we cannot go in. Then Leviticus begins. A sacrifice is given. Atonement is made. Forgiveness for sins. Grace comes. And then the people go in. Then they can meet with God. Grace the means. Glory the goal. And of course, that picture in Exodus and Leviticus is just a shadow of what we see in Christ, right? He is the one who comes and sacrifices himself, gives us the grace of God so that we can know the glory of God's presence and being with the Lord. So we can know the glory of going home to God and being welcomed by him. And what other, what other rival is there to this kind of a home? 
where we get grace and glory, the means and the end of everything we were made for. And then, the psalm closes with this glorious promise, verse 11b. God withholds no good thing from His people. No good thing will He uphold from those who walk uprightly. So, so we are surrounded by promises. We're surrounded by, by strength from God. We have this grace from Him. We're, we're, we're heading home to Him, to that glorious and unimaginably good place where He Himself is. And the whole way there, this is the promise He gives His people. I will withhold no good thing from you. No good thing. Loved ones, this is the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. God works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The psalm closes by saying that the one who trusts in the Lord like this and is living homeward for heaven like this is blessed or happy. That this is the happiest you can be, living this life heavenward, looking to your heavenly home. Loved ones, every other home is temporary and fails and fades and leaves us homesick. So press on, heavenward. Press on, trusting in the Lord Jesus, who opens up our heavenly home for us. Let's pray together.